Hi, I'm Kara Oakleaf. And I'm Susie Rigdon. Welcome to the Fall for the Book podcast, part of the Watershed Lit Station. This season, which is part of Fall for the Book's 25th anniversary celebration, we're sitting down with writers from across the genre spectrum. To hear all of our episodes, subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org to find out more. Now that opening is uh, very relevant to today's episode, Kara, because this is our final podcast episode of our 25th anniversary year, which is pretty momentous. Um, So I wanted to just like take a minute and think about like all the changes that have happened in the last two and a half decades. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, with Fall for the Book, the very first festival was in, in 1999, actually long before you and I had ever heard of it um yes. but I, I know when they when they first started you know it was this this like kind of like weekend festival they had I think like 20 25 authors and it's really kind of remarkable to kind of like look back over the years and see how many people have have been part of it over over all this time it's been thousands and thousands of authors that have come to the area now people that we've been able to talk to online and on the podcast since we've since we've had that that part of it happening it's been really exciting just being a part of that long 25 year history. And it's really shape-shifted. And I think we mentioned earlier on the podcast that this is our fifth year doing this podcast. And the origin story of the Watershed Lit Station was that it was originally this channel called Mason Out Loud. Um, and students and faculty would read stories on there, which was super cool. And then you and I did this episode, the very first one of what has become the Fall for the Book podcast with L.M. Elliott and um, Caroline Tongue Richmond. And it was like historical fiction, YA, political fiction. And it was super cool. And it's just sort of grown from there. And we like recorded in the recording studio at Mason and now we're sitting in our... <laughs> How is it? I'm in my house here at <laughs> here at Mason, like recording over Zoom. It just changed so much. Yeah, yeah, it really has. I, I remember when that podcast that was sort of like we had some students and faculty reading stuff, and you and I kind of at one point were like, there are so many remarkable writers that visit us here either during the festival or as part of like the visiting writer series. And and I think that's what we first started doing was talking with with visiting writers. And and since COVID, we've actually started doing more on the podcast with people who who aren't able to come to the festival, but it's still people we get a chance to talk to and hear about their books. And it's it's one of the things that's just really expanded how many people we're able to hear from, what kind of different things we're able to talk about. And it's, I, I personally love it because I feel like when we're running our events at the festival, we're kind of like, you and I are just sort of all over the place and running oh, around yeah. and we don't always get to just enjoy it. But when we're doing the podcast, you and I get to like sit down and read a book and then talk about it and then chat with the author about it. It's it, it's a really fun experience. And I like have these names on my wall. You So if you just like scroll through our playlist, you'll see some of these incredible names, but I'm just like the number of times that I've fangirled over, you know, like Karen Russell, <laughs> Ilya Kaminsky. It's, it's just, it's been really, really nice. So um, as we move into this final podcast episode of the season, we want to say thank you to everyone who has come out to the festival over the last 25 years. You are amazing. And thank you all to our listeners who have joined us over the last five. And today we're going to be talking with MP Woodward, and we're really looking forward to that conversation. MP Woodward is a veteran of both U.S. intelligence ops and the entertainment industry, and is most recently the author of the spy thriller Dead Drop. Mike, thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, Kara, it's great to be here. Thank you. So Dead Drop is about a high-stakes international relations crisis between the U.S., Israel, and Iran. You have a pretty extensive background in the U.S. intelligence community. Can you talk a little bit about some of the roles that you've held? 
Uh, yeah, so um, I came up through uh, the United States Navy as an intelligence officer, and in that role, I was fortunate in that I got exposed to many of the U.S. intelligence agencies, along with military intelligence, but also was very close to um, to operators like like SEALs that the public thinks of, and 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 other types of operators. Um, so that gave me exposure to both the analytical side of things as well as the operational side. Um, I spent most of my time uh, in the Persian Gulf uh, and and or the Pacific region working for the United States Pacific Command. So you're already sort of setting up like readers who have read this already are already seeing some of these roles reflected in in what they they read in the book. Can you tell us a little bit about what kind types of the personal experience specifically um, that really informed this writing and do you think you'd be writing these kinds of thrillers if you didn't have this background? Well, it's funny because I, I always wanted to be a writer and I tried a couple of different genres like historical fiction and satire before just sitting down and doing something that was actually pretty close to my experience and figured out that, gosh, why didn't I, why didn't I do this from the beginning? And probably like a lot of guys my, my age, I was brought up on, on Tom Clancy and really enjoyed the sort of military aspect of things. Um, and I also always liked spy thrillers with some intrigue and double crosses and a little bit of mystery. And so for that, it's a little bit more like um, John le Carre or Frederick Forsyth. And so my aspiration when I sat to, down to do this was really to show the line that, that I was on, which was sort of halfway between being an intelligence officer and facing the various U.S. intelligence agencies, and then the other half, which was facing the military operations side. So I really wanted to, to, to tell that story and show some of the interplay about, about how that works um, in the real world. And so I was, my, my goal was always to be a little bit more authentic and to, to try to be as accurate as possible about those inner relationships um, as much as the the operations themselves. And you've you've done a lot of the things that we see in this this very globe trotting book. You've traveled to many of these countries, is that right? Yeah, I, I I've tra I've traveled extensively. Um, a lot of that was uh, uh, for the military, but um, a lot of it was also in my role at Amazon, where I I managed international distribution for Prime Video and and set up operations in more than forty countries. So that that gave me a chance to to meet you know people from all over the world. And when you're doing that in a business environment, um, it's super interesting because you're thinking a lot about those customers in that part of the world and what their lifestyle is and you know how they do things, um, et cetera. So I, I hope that it gave me some insights into not just these places and what they look like and feel like, but how people actually live there. It's really interesting thinking about how these experiences of just your exposure to kind of like all these international issues through these very different kinds of jobs that you've had with both uh, through through the military and through and through working in the private sector with Amazon. I, I, I kind of wondered since um, since you are in the private sector now, um, did you do a lot of additional research for uh, for this book as you were working on it? I was kind of thinking about like there must have been a lot of significant changes that have happened in the intelligence community over the years. Yeah, that that's a that's a good point. I I think of it sort of like being um, if you were trained as a physician, and then instead of you know being being a, working in a hospital every day and treating patients, you went off into like 
working on medical devices or some technological aspect of medicine. So really, I had a tech career that was very close to um, communications, technology, internet technologies, and kind of grew up with the internet. So before Amazon, I was at um, I was at a startup, then I was at AT&T for a number of years, and, and was really close to the same types of communications technology that the military uses. So when it came back to really looking at intelligence analysis issues, first of all, um, a number of my friends stayed in the community. And so I was able to verify that things miraculously worked the same way that they always did. It's just that the technology got better. So so before where you know it was a big deal to say get satellite imagery uh, analysis beamed out to a ship on this really special system that was like all dedicated in the size of a damn room, you know, now it is much more internet-based, uh, uh, higher speed, more instantaneous, et cetera. And so I'm able to kind of understand both of the technology side of it uh, around communications as well as the intelligence side. And that was something that I sought, sought out to do as well, uh, back to that authenticity message was to try to make the uh, the technology actually accurate. And I would say accessible. And those are sometimes two very <laughs> different yeah. things depending on your audience. Yeah, I went back and 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 reread just for the heck of it. Um, I think I was in between writing books. And I went back and reread two Tom Clancy novels. Um, and one of them was The Cardinal of the Kremlin. And I like I want I picked that one because I liked the fact that while it was a Tom Clancy, which most people think of as a military thriller writer. There was a spy aspect of, you know, a guy embedded in the Kremlin. But then I realized how hard they went on or he went on technology um, back then. And the entire thing was about, you know, this this satellite, basically what we've come to know as Star Wars. Right. Uh, the the um, the anti-satellite weapons of the Soviet Union and the, the detail with which it was described was somewhat excruciating. And I mean, it's it's like. You either choose to savor that or feel like, man, oh man, I do not need to know all this stuff. Skip ahead. <laughs> and one of the things that I learned really in my in my role at Amazon was in talking to a lot of just being in sort of the entertainment industry and watching how how people consume entertainment, like like thrillers. Granted, in a video context, you start to realize that they've been trained now to to you know they want to set up, they want violence and intrigue and to be on the edge of their seat and then they want a tidy conclusion right i don't think they necessarily want you know 150 pages of exposition on this is how this technology works right and i i think i'm still i'm still learning that like you have to provide just enough to to be authentic but not not too much to where you you bog down and i i keep trying to get um to get better at that it was very accessible. I just, as you were saying that, all I could think of was like all the old like Michael Crichton novels and that exactly. that do that like on every, you know, exactly. every single page is just and pages and pages of detail. It's super funny you mentioned him too, because I, I, you know, when I first started writing, I thought nobody really writes techno thrillers anymore. But then I, later on, I, I sort of realized that, you know, it's because of the market for it isn't, isn't as big as it once was. Maybe it made a spot. And I think you're exactly right. Michael Crichton is the other guy. And he had a science background, right? So when you're reading Jurassic Park, you're going, oh, I get it. It's actually plausible that this mosquito could live in, you know, the 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 plasma of, of sap for for millennia. Um, and so uh, anyway, I, I agree with you that 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 
it is, it's hard. Like, how do you make that dramatic? How do you keep somebody on the edge of their seat um, doing that? Maybe there's a way, but, um, but, I, but I, I think you have to be careful. Yeah, absolutely. You can't always have uh, the John Hammond video at the start, but you know. But speaking of the setup, you know, you you open the book in a very specific way, and that's having the two oaths on the same page: the CIA case officer oath and the Mossad operations officer oath. Why did you decide to start with those and have them next to each other? Uh, because it was supposed to symbolize the the interplay and the relationship between. Mossad and CIA and publicly available information historically Mossad and CIA have worked together very very quick or uh, closely but what I wanted to to show was that at the end of the day you know nations don't have friends they have interests and what I wanted to show was what would happen if there was a real wedge issue between a political administration in the U.S. that was that wanted to use the CIA a certain way, and Israel, which wanted to use Mossad in a different way, and these people who had worked together before were suddenly in conflict, and what would that feel like? Like what would the more supreme, the the national duty or the interpersonal duty, or are there intersections? So that's why I started the two oaths because at the end of the day. It has to be about that that national duty, and I wanted to show how that could really cause uh, a relationship to 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 be strained. I think that's so great, and and that's that's one. Of, this is just like that setup alone was something that I thought made this feel really fresh. And you know, we were just talking about some of the heavy hitters in the genre, and already sort of what you're doing different. But I always find it so fascinating, especially when there are such sort of. Um, strong expectations from readers in a genre. How do you sort of write to knowing what works for the genre, but then to also keep the readers guessing? Because that's that's a tricky thing to do. Yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm building that plane as I fly it, trying to learn <laughs> and get better at that all the time. I think that I, I would say I have a couple of operating principles. Um, one is to not be expository, to tell the story such that the reader is witnessing it. So, so you might you can advance a story by having two characters share dialogue about something that the reader didn't see happen, right? And that can move it along and have some and that way something has happened off stage, right? That wasn't now necessary to know, but it's a clue that okay, he did that here's here's something for the reader as opposed to you know, explaining it and boring the crap out of them, right? So, so that that's that's one thing that I've been really trying to work on. The other is this insight that I had pretty early into trying to do this was that um, really all books are 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 mysteries in this genre. Like I know there is a genre that is mysteries, and then you can take that and it can be a cop thriller or a, you know a, mir a, a, a murder drama, um, etc. But People never, you know, you never want to, they never want everything uh, known right up front, right? You've got to have that. I remember Stephen King writing about it. It's like the the gotta, right? I got to finish this tonight. I got to see what's going to happen, right? And I really saw that when I really started breaking down TV shows and streaming series, really looking at the way they were set up and the way that there was always one more one more mystery to to unlock and the, and some of the most successful book books in this um, genre are all about that mystery and hey what is going to happen and why is it happening 
So that, that was something that I wanted to do. And then I guess the third thing is that I didn't, I, to be honest, I, I don't, I, a lot of the other guys in the, the, the field who I know well, because we have the same agent or the same editor or whatever, um, they've said, it, they've said that they found it interesting that I did multiple perspectives, um, right from, right from the, the beginning. And I thought, well, that's, that's interesting that they found it interesting. Cause I'm not sure how else to show, <laughs> you know, what's happening without providing, um, multiple perspectives. And so once I started playing with that, I thought, well, it's a lot more fun if, if the villain has a certain understanding, but it's wrong, but the reader understands why he thinks that. So the reader's a little bit in on the joke and then your hero, same thing. And, and what I wanted, I wanted readers to go, oh no, he thinks this. Oh, if only I could tell him almost, you know, like that, that, that kind of a feeling. So I, anyway, I like to put clues around for the various characters on each side uh, to pick up and, and end up going in, you know, what might not be the right direction. I, I really like thinking about how those multiple perspectives really influence the story and give you a different way to kind of set up some of the mystery and lay it out for, for readers. Um, like, but the, you know, like the other thing that kind of had me thinking about is it really gives a different perspective to some of the interpersonal relationships that you see yeah. in the yeah. book as well. Um, and one of the things I, I, I really found interesting is that your, your central characters in here are um, John and Meredith who are a divorced couple, you know, like they've already, they've had this relationship, they've separated, but now they have to continue working together while dealing yeah. with their own history. What made you decide to make this series be about a divorced couple and what kind of complexities did you feel like that added to the story? Well, I mean, I think that one of it's just dramatic writing 101, which is that you have to have conflict uh, between characters, right? And so um, I wanted to, so that was that was one aspect. The other was that in talking to some former CIA officers, uh, and I had a relative who's, who's a CIA officer, and reading several memoirs, et cetera, they tend to marry each other because it's a cloistered lifestyle. And then it's very, very hard on the relationship. So divorce rates are super high. Um, and even when they don't marry each other, divorce rates are high. But I wanted to, to show that. And it was also a vehicle for me to show two sides of the CIA, one being a little bit more political and analytical, which, you know, it is an extension of politics. And so I wanted to show that strategic side. But then I also wanted to show the, the gritty door kicking side, which is another aspect uh, of the CIA. And I, and as I mentioned earlier, I wanted to show how that links to um, military operations. So by having one person in and one person out, one person in that part of the field, the other person in the, in the more physical part of the field, and to have them in constant tension, but still drawn together because they share a child, et cetera, that was my, my idea. There's so many moving parts in this book and in the creation of the book. And the, you know, there was so much that you have to balance. It's the interpersonal, it's the the technical details, it's it's everything going on. And I'm I'm so curious when we speak to folks who write from such technical experiential knowledge, when you read, and I'm not asking you to name names, but when you read other books in this genre, is there something that you notice like that they get wrong consistently, whether it's like a technological thing or like a structural thing? Uh, I think that it's, my, my answer is complicated, a little bit complicated because 
On the one hand, I think they get it wrong. On the other hand, I admire their ability to get it wrong. <laughs> and what I mean is, if you know too much about something when you're trying to write about it, you can't help but keep stopping and going, but how would they do that? How would they know that? And my my editor told this, I went to uh, Thriller Fest, uh, I don't know when that, whenever that was, uh, beginning of the summer, and I was on this panel with my my editor, Tom Colgan, and he told this kind of this kind of interesting story and he said um because th this question came up and he and he said that he had a writer who was a former you know intelligence guy and that um when they put a hit on a bad guy the protagonist was you know in miami doing something and this hit was happening in like you know budapest and so the editor said well I don't get it. If the hit is ha happening, why is he still in Miami? And he said, because, you know, it's a big global organization. They'd have people in Budapest who would who would do that. And the editor said, yeah, but it's no good. And he's like, why? And he's like, because the guy in Miami is your protagonist, right? <laughs> like, he's got to do it. And so there's some things where you have to step back and say, look, it just, it just doesn't matter. You have to take the artistic license to simplify something and say, nope, they're going to do this. You can't create this even though it, there's, it's sometimes tempting, you're like, well, how would they know that? And then all of a sudden you're you're stuck and you're coming up with Rube Goldberg crap about how, oh, they got this clue and then they got that clue. And you're like, oh my God, I am on a, such a tangent here. It's like, no, they found a note. That's how they know where to go, right? Like some, there's times when you just have to simplify stuff. And I'm, I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get better, better at that. So while some of the guys, like you could say, hey, they, that didn't happen exactly accurately. I think it can oftentimes be a better story because it didn't. I want to kind of shift gears a little bit and ask you about something kind of on the nonfiction side. Uh, on your blog, you've written a lot about the intersection between national national security and technology. I feel like right now we hear a lot about uh, issues of in misinformation on social media, and especially right now we're hearing a lot about um, artificial intelligence. But I I'm curious with somebody from your perspective, what do you think is the most pressing issue for the general public to be aware of right now? I think it is it is that future conflicts between countries aren't as cut and dried and visible as they used to be. So, you know, if you look at uh, World War II, Pearl Harbor happens. Okay, I get it. We're going to war, you know. World War One. hey, there's an assassination in Serbia. And so all these alliances spin out of control and there's like this kind of great lead up. And I think conflicts happen now because of technology under the covers and that nations are are sort of in a, are locked in a struggle that we don't see. And so it's sort of like somewhere between a Cold War and, uh, and I guess it's a little closer to a Cold War because bullets aren't necessarily flying, but things are being done. And I would point out um, China, for example, which I've written a lot about um, China in the last, in the last year. The, the FBI has thousands of open cases on, on uh, Chinese infiltration into industrial espionage. And, you know, penetrating that, that in a, the new digital way and the way that's been reported is something that's, you know, that's pretty scary. Or, and then if you couple that with, okay, so we're going to do that to steal secrets. And then along with that, we're going to undermine public confidence in, you know, American institutions, and we're going to sort of spoil uh, American youth so that it 
messes up the draft. I mean, you you can, I, I read recently that, or a report came out not long ago that said that something like 75% of American youth are full out ineligible for military service. So if, if you were to like take a really long view as some, you know, country that that doesn't want the United States to be to be successful, then you could see how you use digital technology, which is all interlinked to to influence that. And I, you know, not not to be utterly paranoid, but but there is plenty of evidence that um, that China is doing just that uh, really on every aspect and using the Chinese diaspora as as you know sort of agency to to get in and, and do those kinds of things. And if you spend a lot of time looking into it and thinking about it, you, the evidence is there and you can kind of, you know, you can kind of freak yourself out. So I would just say like, you know, for the general public, like be aware you are, there is a digital footprint. There are digital efforts to, to do things, to, to thwart what are not in the best interests of the country. And you want to have political leadership that understands that and is dealing with it with open eyes. Yeah, it's really changed so much about like the way we connect globally and um, and it's had just a huge impact in so many areas. That's really, really interesting. And terrifying. <laughs> well, and, and I I mean, I kind of take this, this I, I, I came of age in the 1990s and the Cold War had ended and the internet was born and all of a sudden it was very exciting. It was kind of a golden age. I, I think history will look at it that way because um, borders had sort of fallen, globalization, had taken hold through technology, rapid free trade, commercialization, raised living stands, standards all over the world. But that now I worry that that you know we've come to a point where countries are sort of take or you know countries we don't that don't like it are pushing back, and so we're seeing that in an alliance with um, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. You know, um, I don't know when this is going to to, to show up on platforms, but. Yesterday, Kim Jong-un met with, you know, Vladimir Putin, who's got an avowed relationship with Xi Jinping, um, et cetera. And we weren't talking about stuff like that in the, the 1990s or the, the 2000s. This is all relatively new. And I think it is it is a little bit of the pendulum swinging back from that globalization and digitization of um, global commerce and communication. All right. So on a very, very different note for all of those... Uh... All of those nerds out there, I wanted to ask you, you were you worked with the development of the international distribution strategy for the um, Rings of Power series on Amazon. What goes in what kind of decisions and questions go into that multi-million dollar global strategy? There, there, there's a there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into that. Um the large the, the entire streaming industry right now is um, is an arms race and it has been for a while around who can who can get the best content, what we would call a tent pole release because it hold, holds everything up and and then draw in subscribers. Then the business objectives of those companies that are trying to draw in subscribers vary, right? So for Amazon, a business objective is to create loyalty to Prime and the brand. And then that content can almost be subsidized, really, the cost of that content, because the customer is going to shop with Amazon, is going to do other things with Amazon, and there's a certain lifetime value to that. For a company that doesn't have the ability to do that, like a, like a Netflix, that's much harder. And I think you're seeing Netflix struggle with that right now. So we evolved from Netflix like making a market 
to, oh no, now these giant behemoths are in it, like Apple, for example, and Amazon and Google, who can subsidize it with their massive businesses. And they see video not as the end, but as the means to the end, right? Um, and so if you take a step back from all that and realize that that's the market, then a company, every one of these streaming platform needs its, you know, needs its uh, uh, house of cards. And that, that you know, that put Netflix on the map in 2013 and HBO had, uh, you know, Game, Game of Thrones and they're like, boom, huge thing. And so for something like Amazon Prime, which was still an entrant um, at the time, we had some Emmy winners, you know, shows like, like Transparent. Um, they, they, they won lots of awards, but they were very niche. And so the, the goal was, what can we get that is, you know, that is on the order of a, of a Game of Thrones? And so something like a Lord of the Rings comes around and you can imagine it's going to command a pretty penny. So um, when when those types of deals for that that level of content happens, all the major players show up and everybody has their strategy, whether it's the NFL or, or you know, a marquee uh, like a James Bond or, or Lord of the Rings. And they all need to place their bets on what is the thing that can draw people in and keep them here. And and the execution of that needs to be very good. You have to line up, uh, you have to promote the crap out of it. You have to make it very easy for customers to access it. You have to reveal enough that they're excited about it, but not too much, et cetera. Just like, you know, releasing uh, a, a movie. So it is, it is definitely, it has become one of the more um, strategic things that companies like Amazon do because they cost billions of dollars. I mean, they're big investments and to get a return on them is significant. And that return isn't just the subscribers, it's the lifetime value customers have. So it's a, it's a, it's a very uh, big deal and lots of people involved. Really, really interesting to hear about uh, about this, about your work with Amazon, about your history with with Intelligence Ops and, um, and about your book. It's been really great to talk with you today, Mike. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Kara. It's been my pleasure. The Falcon Book Podcast is produced by Jordan Bostick as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org.